why don't we um, dive into Mark? A few nights before his crucifixion, Jesus promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. And he said the Holy Spirit's going to do a couple different things. He's going to be there as a comforter. Uh, but one of the things that the Holy Spirit, he said, was going to do is this. He's going to lead you into truth. This is what Jesus said. When the Spirit of truth comes, and he's talking to his immediate disciples. This is like in the upper room, right, around the context of the Last Supper. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, does anyone remember Mark's nickname? Relaxing, what was it? Stump fingers. Remember? Mark sticked it with stump fingers because his fingers were so short compared to his body. Um, I believe that part of the answer to this, that this promise was that the Spirit guided Peter to faithfully recall, and the Spirit guided Mark to faithfully record what they had seen of Jesus. Right? Jesus said, the Spirit's going to guide you into this process of preserving the truth so that what Peter had seen could be faithfully passed down 2,000 years later to us. Right, Generations later, we're still looking at the eyewitness accounts of Peter as recorded by Mark. And so, we're, this is the first time we're going to meet Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we're about to see him make what might be the largest career change anyone has ever made. Um, at one point, I've been a, a middle school teacher, I've been a landscaper, I've worked in businesses, now I'm a pastor. I've done little changes over time. But Jesus is about to go from being a craftsman, a tradesman of some type, to the Savior for all to see. How do you make that kind of transition, right? How do you go? 30 years he's been living in Nazareth. He's been probably, we think, a craftsman of some kind. He was known by people. They were a little suspicious of his birth, probably. You know, news travels fast in little villages. You know, he wasn't a hermit, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. He was a known person in his community. How do you go from being that to being a prophet with power, a rabbi with authority, and ultimately a savior? How do you make that, how do you make that career change? There's no class you could take for that, right? That shift. Why should we put our hope and trust in a man who never sat under any great teachers, never went to college, whose public ministry lasted about three years and who was killed at the end of it? Right? Why should you put the foundational trust of your life in someone like that? You might not ask yourself that question very often. But many people do ask themselves that question. They ask, why on earth should I put my trust in Jesus Christ? And so what I want to show you this morning is as we meet Jesus, we're going to see how God shifted, if you will, how God transitioned him from craftsman to savior. Rabbi, powerful leader and teacher. It's pretty fascinating. Mark's going to take us to the moment of transition, and we're going to see two things that Jesus was God's choice, and that Jesus passed God's test. The choice and the test are interlocked. So let's uh, follow along as I read Mark 1, 9 to, uh, 9 to 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We'll look at the baptism and we'll look at the temptation. We'll look at it in two parts. The baptism just shows us crystal clearly that Jesus was God's choice. Jesus was the man God chose for the mission God had. Right? In those days it said he came down from Nazareth, he's coming south, and he's baptized by the Jordan, in the Jordan River. The Jordan was the dividing line, kind of the ancient boundary marker. They crossed the Jordan like 1,500 years ago under Joshua to first enter the Promised Land. So John's you know, ministry there is very symbolic, truly rich with symbolism. He's in the Jordan. People are confessing their sins. Jesus comes. If you were there and you were near Jesus, you would have seen three things. You would have seen, you would have heard three things. The first things you would have seen was what? The heavens split open. Then the next thing you would have seen was something like a dove land on Jesus. And the third thing you would have seen was a voice that made sense of the picture. Right? So what does it mean that the heavens split open? What is that talking about? That's just like clouds parting. It's an interesting word, split open. The word is schizo. Schizo in Greek, to tear apart. Look where it's also used in Mark. Jesus is dying, it says, on the cross. He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was schizo. It was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the same word. The heavens were torn in two. It seems to me that at this precise moment in time, God tore the fabric of the universe open. I can't put it any other way than that. It's like he tore open the fabric of the universe. He split the heavens. So that heaven and earth, if you will, there was an opening between them. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 64. Isaiah said, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Isaiah cries this out, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And they see God coming down in the form of a dove as the spirit. We have a dove that likes to come to our uh, windowsill. We have a little bird. Any of you have bird feeders? Bird feeders. We, we have a little bird feeder by our dining room window. The squirrels occupy it about 64% of the time. Julie, they should label these as squirrel feeders, not bird feeders. And then when the squirrels are done, the birds get to come in. And now the titmouse, like, see, they just dart in. There's like two or three of them, and there's a bush nearby. One goes in, shoop, he grabs his little seed, and he like shoops out. 
And then the next one comes. It's like they're signaling. Then the next one, the next one. And then the blue jay comes and he's all quack, 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 quack. He's all squawking around, noisy blue jays and stuff like that. When the morning dove comes, he just plops his little thick body down on the sill, moves his head around, and he'll sit there for hours when it's snowing. He was the only bird there when it was snowing because the heat vent comes up there. They're smart, morning doves. So they're kind of peaceful, but I don't think the dove is really meant to be a huge symbolic thing. It's interesting now, look, this is a guy, 250 AD, Gregory Thaumaturgus, I think. He says, the dove points to Jesus as the new Noah, the pilot of the nature that is everywhere shipwrecked. I thought that was a great line, but I wasn't totally convinced, even though a dove came to Noah, right, brought him the fig leaf. You know, the theologians have wrestled, why the dove? This is what Bede, the venerable Bede, wrote this, 700 AD. The image of the dove is placed before us by God so that we may learn the simplicity of the favored by him. The dove is a stranger to malice. Right? They don't fight and squawk and attack. So may all bitterness, anger, and indignation be taken away from us. These things are true, but I think the main point was that God wanted his uh, the people around Jesus to see the invisible. I think that was the point of the dove. The dove comes down and they can now see the invisible because what's actually happening is the Holy Spirit is coming upon Christ in a unique and powerful way. And what they know is that whereas the Spirit has landed on Jesus, their friend, that Spirit did not land on anyone else. The Spirit did not land on John like a dove. It did not land on Peter or Andrew or James. They're starting to see that Jesus was chosen by God. Remember, they had mostly known him as a tradesman. Now here he is in the rivers of Jordan, and the Spirit of God is descending upon him. The heavens have split open, and they're starting to see he was chosen by God. And Peter remembers these things. And he recalls these things. And if you were there, you would have seen these things with your eyes. And then you would have heard this verse explain the picture from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Again, God is making his choice clear. Jesus was chosen by God in a way that no one else ever was or will be. He is the beloved son. A son shares his father's DNA, and so Jesus shares the essence, the same substance as his father. But he's not just the son, he's the beloved son. The father is affectionate toward the son. God loves the son. And that, to me, makes the cross that much more kind of poignant and heartbreaking. It's not like the cross was some sick joke the father played on the son. The father surrenders the son, and the son willingly submits to the father. Why do they do this? Do they do this just because they want to? No. They do it for you. They do it for your sin, to be cleansed. They do it that the separation between heaven and earth might one day be permanent. They do it so that the spirit might one day come on us. Right? The heart of God is so affectionate for his people. You're adopted into that family. You're a beloved child of God when you come in through Christ. The baptism of Jesus establishes 
that Jesus was visible to the eye, audible to the ear, God's choice. It wasn't something the disciples conjured up and thought of on their own. They had witnessed something. Now, when I got ordained, I had a party afterward. It was 2009, and uh, I failed the first time. So the second time, you know, we had to have a party. <laughs> the tests are kind of hard. And, um, and, and it was worth it. I had friends coming from out of state, and I just remember it was a really ex uh, special time. It was really good. Jesus has this incredible moment, right? And you might think, wow, they should celebrate this. There should be some kind of party or recognition to honor what has just happened at the Jordan River. But instead, God does the exact opposite. He sends Jesus out to be tested. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So the test began right after the baptism. Would Jesus go into the wilderness? Would he go where there's less protection, where there are no walled cities, where there's bandits, where there's animals, where there's less water? And of course he went. He goes. And I want you guys to really see this. This isn't Satan's test, okay? This is God's test. This isn't Satan's idea. I'm going to lure Jesus out to the wilderness. Tempt him out there. God drives Christ out there. That verse we read earlier in Psalm where it says, God tests the righteous. It's true. The scriptures are filled with tests of righteous people. Some pass, some fail. Eve failed. Adam failed. Israel failed a good many. He's out there. How many days is he out there? Forty, right? So he's out there for one day for every year the Israelites were out in the wilderness. They were out there 40 years between Egypt and Canaan. Jesus is out there 40 days. And he's hungry. And he's weak physically. He's alone. Have you ever noticed that physical weakness often translates to spiritual weakness. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Like when you're more tired, you're more vulnerable to temptation. When you're in a little more pain, you're less spiritually resilient. I remember talking with a friend of mine, a man who was sharing, he's going through a long sickness. And he used to struggle with pornography. And he said, Peter, it was just so hard when I was sick and in bed. He's like, I just desperately wanted to pick up my phone and look at things I shouldn't. And he's like, and I had no reserves. I had like not, no inner strength to say. And this was not like, I mean, this was a godly guy. Like if you met him, you would have been like, he really loves the Lord. And it's just part of the nature of, we're one person, right? We're physical, we're a mental, we're not just compartmentalized. So when we're weak in one area, we're often weak in multiple areas. And he was sharing with me, he's like, some days I just failed. It was too tired. It was too tempting. So I just want you to realize this is a real test. It's not a dog and pony show for us to look at Jesus and be like, wow, didn't he do good? Good job. He was tired. He was hungry. He was weak. If it wasn't a temptation, it wouldn't have been called a temptation. He was with the wild animals. <clears throat> and the angels were ministering to him. If he wasn't weaker, the angels wouldn't have had to minister to him. Right? 
Jesus passed God's test. And there's two things we can kind of marvel at because he did. His perfection and his compassion. Hebrews 4, you know this verse awesomely. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'll read it again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Guys, that's good news. That means when you fail the test, when you fall into sin or when you jump gladly into it, you have a high priest who knows why you fell into sin, who understands why you failed the test, who sympathizes with your weak will and your weak soul and your weak body and your weak emotions and your loneliness and your sadness. And your, he just, he, he gets it. He emptied himself of his glory. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he gets what it is to be a human. He knows what it is to fail. And he doesn't look at you and go, ah, they're so terrible. I'm getting new, better people. No, the whole story of Israel is I'm not going to abandon you. If you're my people, you're my people. And my love endures forever. And I'm going to lift you up. But you've got to come to me. So guys, when you fail that test, go to the high priest. When you fail that test, go to your great high priest. Receive his forgiveness, his healing, and his comfort. Go to him knowing he sympathizes with your weaknesses. And though he never sinned, he did experience trial and testing and temptation. James teaches us, James was Jesus' brother. He kind of, he almost looks like James is thinking about this moment, right, when he writes this verse. Look at each part. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Jesus submitted himself to the Spirit, and he went out to the wilderness. Resist the devil. Jesus says no to the various temptations of the devil in his weakened state, and he will free from you. Eventually, the devil departs. Jesus was chosen by God. Jesus passed God's test. And so he goes back to Galilee. John the Baptist had been arrested, but he had done what he had been sent to do. He had revealed the Christ. His time was ending. Christ's time was beginning. And 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, Proclaiming the gospel of God. The good news was now on his lips. And this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. Right? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's close. Repent. And just turn from your old way. And believe in the gospel. Last week I, I quoted, I think it's Calvin, who says, Jesus always comes to us clothed in the gospel. We never know the trap, the tradesman, we never know the boy, 
We only know the Messiah, and that's God's plan. So Christ meets you today, and he says, believe in the gospel. Repent of your sins. I want to kind of close with one point of application here, and that is this. For those of you who have repented, and those of you who do believe in the gospel, you are never alone in the wilderness of your own temptations. Jesus was alone so that you wouldn't be alone. How are you doing with temptation these days? I don't ask that to make you feel bad. I just ask that because maybe no one else will ask you that this week. How are you doing with temptation these days? Is Satan making inroads? You're not alone. Even if you think you're alone. Jesus is with you in the temptation. And he not only shows us how to respond, he does in some ways equip us to respond. Here's a beautiful verse here. God, Jesus is God, right? He's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Which implies he will let you be tempted. We don't need to see that in the Bible. <laughs> we know that's true already. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think it's fascinating how the way of escape doesn't necessarily get you right out of it, but it enables you to endure it. Endure, resist, flee. These are all Bible words that describe how we ought to respond to temptation. And so you might be in a bit of a wilderness at work. It might be a battlefield for you. It might be a place where you're easily tempted to anger, frustration, very unchristlike actions. You might be in a wilderness in your marriage at this point or in your family. COVID's been really tough on some families. Disagreements about what to do, how to do it, how to respond, even between husband and wife, family and kids, brothers and sisters who are grown, how to handle things. Maybe at school for you kids, when you head back tomorrow, if you're going face to face, there may be temptations there. Are you ready to stand firm? To resist? To look for the way of escape? To take it? And when you don't, 
Sometimes you won't. Go to your great high priest. When you come to your senses, like the lost son in the pigsty, and you realize, what am I doing here? Jesus knows why you're there. He died so you wouldn't stay there. So when you come to your senses, go to your high priest, lay it at his throne. You'll find grace, you'll find mercy, you'll be restored, you'll be renewed, so that you can stand for the Lord. Why don't you stand, closing prayer?